Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how you doing? I'm good. I am so stoked to spend the entire episode discussing Prince Harry's memoir. Yeah, so we're going to be doing dramatic readings from the bombshell memoir, Spare. We're starting here on his story about his hog having frostbite at (laughs) his brother's wedding. Here we go. (laughs) Me little bishop needs a jumper. Chav nicked me mobile? (laughs) Just kidding, folks. But yeah, he really, I got to say, just briefly, Prince is really putting it all out there. He really is. I respect this kind of like gossip mongering when he doesn't need it. He has the money. He has the prestige. He's in it for the love of the game. And that's the kind of just shit slinging that I really respect. I mean, you just imagine the publisher being like, Prince Harry, we need a tell-all. And he's like, all right, you got it. I will tell all. <laughs> he had this all ready to go. <laughs> so moving on to more serious news. So the kind of the big bombshell as we record this is that Diamond of the pro-Trump duo Diamond and Silk died on Monday. Kelly, were you following this news? Yeah, I was. So Diamond, there were reports about her health for a while. I think she was in and out of the hospital back half of the year. But Trump really broke the news late last night, Truth Social. He said Diamond's death was totally unexpected. And this is where only in a Trump obituary, he goes, probably her big and precious heart just plain gave out. (laughs) Heart in all cap. I mean, yes, her heart was too big. I mean, the reality is we don't know why Diamond or Lynette Hardaway died, but it is, I mean, the, I'm laughing here at Trump's just really bizarre phrasing here. This one Republican guy, this former congressional candidate, who, by the way, did not, I believe, secure enough. Basically, he botched his primary and didn't make it on the ballot. So there. So this guy, he's like, Will, come on, you know what he meant. This is not a weird thing to say. And I was like, I think it's kind of weird, especially when you're the person who's breaking the news of her death. So as you said, I mean, so Diamond and Silk, we all know them. They were kind of prominent two black Trump supporters who were very outspoken. They had these videos where they would kind of play off each other. Diamond was kind of the main talker. And so she would talk a lot. And then Silk would say, yep, mm-hmm, like tell it, Diamond. And it made them huge stars. And they went on Trump rallies. They, I believe they, they visited the White House. And so there's a timeline here that I think is worth getting into that you mentioned, because a lot of people are saying Diamond died of COVID. And so Diamond and Silk were big vaccine haters to the point that when Trump was pushing it, there was kind of a there was a question of whether there would be a rift between them. They said this was a Bill Gates plot to kill. And so, of course, people say, oh, Diamond, Diamond, who did die very young at 51, Diamond died of COVID. But she was in the hospital as of November and then for a bit, and they tweeted prayers for Diamond. And then she reemerged and did a couple more shows and then and said, oh, I, it was fake news that I had COVID. And then she went away again, kind of disappeared on the 15th of December. So it seems like she was sick for a while. It's not clear yet what it was and may never be clear. And so, yeah, so it's not totally clear that she died of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, a lot of people on the right will conflate COVID with other things. They'll say, oh, I don't have COVID. I have pneumonia. But we got to be careful on the opposite side, not doing what Trump fans like to do and saying that everyone who collapses collapsed because it got the vaccine. Well, not everyone who dies died of COVID. Did she? We don't really know yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, certainly there were people noting the irony of, I think rather people play a little rougher on Twitter than I do, that suddenly, like in the past, every kind of sudden death before you're 100 years old has been attributed to the vaccine. And yet they were saying, well, maybe Diamond got the vaccine, obviously. It kind of several layers of irony at play there. So I actually called Mike Lindell. So as I said, Trump broke this news. I was noodling around on the computer last night. I was going through some pretty spicy lawsuits, which folks will hear about next week's episode. And I thought before I, I close up the computer, 
maybe Trump's tweeted something that I could post on Twitter that I could riff off of. And indeed, he had just posted that Diamond had died. And so I called Mike Lindell, who hosted the Diamond and Silk show, and he was very shocked by it. And he said she had been sick for a while. And then kind of in this sort of a very only in... 2022 moment, he said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have to call Silk. And so so there you go. Yeah. Listen, everyone deals with grief in their own way. I do think it's a little bit weird that people still don't use their legal names. That's what they were known as. And a death is a death. It's still very sad. Yeah, absolutely. And the final thing I would say is that Roger Stone has sort of never misses a trick in terms of his chance to promote himself. I think there's a question of like, what will become of Silk now? She was not kind of the main figure in the pair, I would say. And Roger Stone just, I mean, I don't know, within an hour of Diamond's death being announced, said, Maybe it should be Stone and Silk, I think, giving himself the first billing and saying, like, come on, Silk. So the hustle never stops for some folks. That's what we need is a Roger Stone podcast to fill the void. So, Kelly, in other news, Brazil just had their own January 6th moment. Tell me about it. Yeah, right. So a couple days after January 8th, Brazilian supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed Brazil's government complex, the presidential palace, the Supreme Court and their Congress. In a lot of ways, it was very, very reminiscent of January 6th. They had the flags, they had the marching groups, they had the people walking through government chambers, trashing things, actually causing quite a lot more damage, it looks like, than the January 6th protesters. I mean, they had flooding in there, fires, people pulling down their pants and mooning the cameras. And all of this over similar fake claims about the election being stolen from Bolsonaro. And this is interesting, Will, because... I think Brazil reacted quite a bit quicker, maybe with a firmer hand than in the U.S. We saw a lot of these protesters being arrested on the scene, which isn't really something that we saw on January 6th. We had to wait for everybody to vacate the Capitol. And then weeks later, the arrests and indictments start rolling in. So obviously, this is still really in flux, but it doesn't really appear to have accomplished anything politically for these people. It's really more of, I think, just a mass demonstration, something to strike fear into the hearts of the new left-leaning government in Brazil. So there are some differences here between January 6th. Obviously, this was not at the moment that Congress was certifying the Brazilian election, that there were the buildings were empty, the buildings that were ransacked, including the presidential palace, Congress, and the Supreme Court. But there's a lot of similarities. It looks very similar. There's these kind of visuals of protesters breaking through and getting pepper sprayed by cops and sort of overwhelming the police. And there are also... This sort of comes as the culmination of a lot of similarities and Brazil kind of borrowing a lot of moments from American politics. Like Bolsonaro was really, before his loss, was importing a lot of sort of American culture war issues. So it's a very weird thing to see happen. I mean, one positive similarity, dissimilarity for Brazil is that, as you said, I mean, they actually managed to arrest a lot of these people as they were doing it, unlike the Capitol Police and the other law enforcement people in D.C. who let a lot of these people leave and then sort of had to rely on just sort of looking at surveillance video and stuff like that to track them down. They just rounded them up. And now you can see that I think they arrested some 1,200 people in Brasilia. Yeah, what was interesting, also a pretty stark contrast between the U.S. and Brazil, is Brazil's new president, Lula da Silva, kind of went cab on this. He went on national TV and he said, yeah, there are some police units we just fundamentally can't trust right now. And I think that's really not an admission you'd hear in the U.S. was talking about law enforcement complicity in this. Because although you didn't see too many active duty police appearing to participate in January 6th, there were so many non-active duty police, people who had taken leave from their departments and gone up to D.C. for the weekend or something. So I thought that was a pretty striking admission. I think it was pretty accurate as well. Building on on what you said there, I think about during the January 6th committee revelations that there was concern about the FBI's ability to enforce these cases because it was thought that a lot of people in the FBI were sympathetic to the rioters in the U.S. For me, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on. I think that there's sort of a local Brazilian angle that is very complex. For me, I think there's an American angle here, which is interesting which are the ties between sort of the Trumpian right and the Bolsonaroistas. You have, going back several months, think about Jason Miller getting questioned before his flight took off in Brazil. And I've been reading, of course, the Gateway Pundit a lot. And they have just been like beating the drum for a coup or like some kind of action to overturn the results. And as someone reading sort of more mainstream news outlets, I was like, I don't really think there's any evidence that the military is going to step in and install Bolsonaro or anything. Yet you had people like this guy named Matthew Tiermond, 
who's sort of a an international far-right player. He's had some involvement in Eastern Europe. He's buddies with James O'Keefe and Steve Bannon. And he has just been really like breathlessly sort of reporting in a very pro-Bolsonaro way sort of all the developments since the election. So really reading the right-wing media in the U.S., I really got the sense that like certainly they were on board and I think they were hearing from their Bolsonaro buddies that emotions were still very high and uh, perhaps something like this would happen. Yeah, absolutely. The Bannon world, it has its talking points in this election denialism in the Bolsonaro circles, right? So Steve Bannon has been full out saying, yes, Bolsonaro actually won. There has been a steal, just like in the U.S. And Bolsonaro has his more everyday fans in the U.S. too. So Well, what's absolutely blowing my mind is Bolsonaro wasn't actually in Brazil when this happened, because since the end of December, he's been a Florida man. He's been hanging out in Orlando in this rental house just outside of Disney World. And his fans have been visiting him there. It is absolutely bizarre scenes. You've got Bolsonaro fans just rocking up on this suburban lawn and this ex-president's out there kind of throwing up a peace sign at them. He was spotted in a Publix grocery store just wandering around, just looking extremely out of place. He had some KFC the other day. It was his last lunch as technically president. He's really surrounding himself with maybe one of the staunchest support groups, which is weird Floridians. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, if we've seen anything really from Trump and Ron DeSantis and all this, I mean, weird Floridians are really like a powerful nexus of bad energy. I mean, this is truly a bizarre thing. I mean, Bolsonaro, he always gets up to weird stuff. He's constantly getting hospitalized. He got got hospitalized again after this riot. But what's so odd to me about it is like, doesn't he have like a dude who can go get fried chicken for him and go to the supermarket? Like he's just kind of walking around and it's not even like he's really going anywhere. It's not like the kind of thing where it's like, the paparazzi are catching him going into a meeting. He's kind of just there. He is just kind of there. So listen, he's been there long enough that I've been trying to find him, right? Not in person, but looking for Bolsonaro sightings. And what is striking to me is that he is really literally just hanging out in a gated community. Like I was looking this place up and it's where people have their second homes. It's where people have the timeshares. He's really living the Floridian lifestyle. It is completely unclear to me whether he does have a guy doing the shopping for him and why he is hanging out in his rental house rather than someplace, I don't know, maybe more stately. It's a weird choice to me. Well, reportedly, I believe he was staying with an MMA fighter whose house has a Minions-themed room. So... (laughs) This is not confirmed that that's the room Bolsonaro was staying in, but certainly we can imagine it. There's kind of like one more shoe to drop here about Bolsonaro's exile to Florida, which is when is the American right going to start like going to meet him and like kind of courting him? This is like kind of a weird, it sort of seems like, if I'm remembering correctly, that his son, I think, was a little more savvy with the American right. I don't think that we can think of like, there's not a ton of Bolsonaro going on Infowars or anything like that. But nevertheless, I think if he stays there long enough and if this case heats up, we could start seeing American right wing sort of gravitating towards him. Already, we have none other than January 6th rally organizer Ali Alexander sort of trying to insert himself by saying, everyone, I am flying to Florida. Incidentally, that is also where Bolsonaro is. Hint, hint. I don't think there's any, I mean, this guy can't get enough of sort of associating himself with attempted coups. So it's a very weird thing. I remember back in the day when Americans would flee to Brazil to avoid extradition if you had a crime hanging over you. But nowadays, it seems like Brazilians flee to America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and listen, if this is going to become some sort of international far-right hotspot. I did have a look at the rental property. It is a five-minute shuttle from Disney World, so we could really see some incredible scenes. Ali Alexander on Splash Mountain. You get Bolsonaro maybe doing kind of a Disney meet and greet, meet Elmo or Mickey or something. Elmo's not. (laughs) 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 There's just tons of potential there. There's so many Florida men, either literally or in spirit, and I think we're gearing up for them all to collaborate. Absolutely. So, Kelly, speaking, it's odd that we have two items on this topic, but speaking of people wanted for crimes in Brazil, newly (laughs) sworn in rep George Santos, he had quite a wild first week in Washington. Catch me up to date on George Santos, the famous, I guess just to be frank about it, the famous liar. Yeah, the famous liar. I mean, listen, well, it's kind of hard to find anything George Santos hasn't lied about. This is the newly elected New York representative. I had missed one that I guess he lied about having cancer. What? That is such a high schooler thing. I know people who've lied about having cancer. Wow. Well, chuck it on the list because he's also lied about his entire education from like high school to college, his work history. He lied about his mom dying in 9-11. He lied about his grandma dying in the Holocaust. It's his whole resume. And to your point about being wanted for crimes in Brazil, he's admitted to 
when he was 19, stealing a guy's checkbook and writing bad checks for himself. So he's wanted actively in Brazil right now. Despite all that, he was just sworn into Congress where it kind of seems like the right is making efforts to rehabilitate his image. It's starting with a lot of the obvious suspects. In the days before George Santos's inauguration, Marjorie Taylor Greene went on a Twitter thread, basically in Santos's defense and using it to dredge up old right-wing grievances. She says, George Santos lied about his resume and the left is demanding he resign. And then she goes on to a thread of things that she says are left-wing lies. She says, like, the left said George Floyd didn't die of a drug overdose. They lied. I mean, this is a lie by Marjorie Taylor Greene because George Floyd was found to have been murdered by a police officer who was convicted of murder. And she concludes by saying the left doesn't care about lying. The real reason they're attacking George Santos is that, oh, this is a typo, but she means to say that he's the first openly gay Republican elected and they hate him for it. I'm glad George is being honest with his district now and look forward to seeing how George legislates and votes. So these are kind of the first tentative steps into rehabbing George Santos into making him a viable and acceptable part of, granted, a fringe caucus, but very much players in the House and accepting his vote, not treating him like the liar he is. Look, George Santos is really growing on me. So he has this like <laughs> he's wearing this vest, the kind of V-neck sweater and the tie combo. And he was sort of blundering around for his first couple of days. But in the midst of all this Kevin McCarthy craziness, I mean, George Santos is the viewer identification character. You're starting a new show. You want to kind of throw us into the action, but you need a guy who's going to be constantly like, what's this? Or like, what the? Well, that's crazy. <laughs> And that's what he was doing. He was kind of miming and he didn't know who he was going to sit with and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I have to say he's growing on me. I mean, you hint here at what the ultimate George Santos defense is going to be. And it seems like this week, now that the dust has settled over the speaker's race, we're sort of headed into the big Republican. Yeah, get over it. Yeah, he's a pathological liar. Whatever. Who cares? Because the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing kind of hits at it, which is you just say, well, yeah, George Santos lied about his relatives in the Holocaust. Of course. And he died about when his mom died. Of course. And he lied about his education and the fact that he's not really a real estate millionaire. But then again, Obama lied when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep him. And so you kind of just pull these random things up. As you said, Elizabeth Warren said she was Native American Indian. She lied. Ilhan Omar said she didn't marry her brother from the MTG tweet. So you pull these things up and then you kind of just, I guess the term for this is what about us? But you throw enough sand in a locutor's eyes and you go, oh, yeah. Another one I'm hearing is that this is the Democrats' fault because they like didn't dig all this up before the election. And so it's sort of like, well, you can't expect the Republicans to figure this one out and keep a guy like this out of office. So I think that's what we're going for. In reality, this guy is going to serve two years of just looking like he doesn't know what's going on then he's going to get primaried but what if he's just like the best legislator ever and we're like oh we gotta keep him he's good he supposedly later this week will be speaking to the media and he's doing this kind of like everything will be explained i love this because he's done this a couple times where he says don't be mean to me don't ask me all these questions everything will be explained but how could it possibly be explained other than just like yeah i made it up that is a viable explanation and i think it's Listen, we're taking issue with this guy lying about his entire resume, but he's not accused of major crimes outside of stealing $700 from an elderly man, which that is kind of a major crime. But we do overlook a lot of more serious allegations, right? Matt Gates is in Congress. He's wrapped up in some kind of sex trafficking investigation. Donald Trump, I mean, he's been accused of sexual assault how many times, right? So the right does have this ability to really gloss over these allegations to say, well, yeah, like you said, what about it? And I think as long as he is inaugurated, which was in question for a little while, they're going to be able to move quite smoothly along as long as he's not questioning their ultimate agenda. He's not really mucking up the works for them. I think Santos has made a pretty savvy staffing move here. And so he's, this gets a little inside base, but I think we can glean some things from. So as one of his first staffer hires, he's hired a guy named Vish Burra, who is a pugnacious Twitter personality and sort of <laughs> deeply involved in New York young Republican circles. And we talked in the past about the New York young Republican scene, which is a bit more, plenty more extreme than you might expect from New York. Now, Vish is, was previously the campaign, I believe, campaign manager for Joey Salads, the racist Yeehaw. YouTuber who had a disastrous congressional campaign, I believe, in 2020 and who would stage these like leave a car in a black neighborhood with a Trump bumper sticker. And oh, they destroyed it. And it turned out he just faked it. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's harder to, I think, campaign for someone like Joey Salads, who's filmed drinking his own piss and dressing up as a Nazi. It's easier to campaign for George Santos than it is for someone like that. I think that's right. And Vish is, I would say this is a guy who believes that the best defense is a good offense. I'm thinking about, I believe it was Jordan Klepper of The Daily Show who interviewed him and Vish was wearing these kind of ridiculous ripped jeans. And Jordan Klepper said like, oh, you got this kind of like 70s breakdancing style here. And he said like, yeah, they're true religion. They cost 700 bucks, bitch. Or like something like that. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just like, what? And so I think that's a pretty good hire if you just want to be kind of be in the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates school of just like, yeah, well, whatever, deal with it. And then just sort of throw something back at the Democrats. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's very much, I think, a make the libs mad caucus. And I think George Santos being inaugurated this week is pretty telling in that it also happened the week that this fringe right wing of the GOP held the rest of the party and really all of Congress hostage over the speaker vote. These are people with very clear political aims. Obviously, Matt Gates was aiming for some concessions from Kevin McCarthy, but it's not like they had a really clear like political program. They were there for the protest vote. They were there to be annoying. And unfortunately, there is room for someone like George Santos, who what does he stand for? We don't even know who he is. So I don't really see him being completely out of place in the Gates Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert wing. And in fact, during his first week there, he actually sat with a lot of those people after a really cringy first day where he sat alone. Marjorie Taylor Greene appears to have taken him under her wing. So I fully intend to see him rolling with that alternative squad there. It is fascinating. I mean, this is obviously he's not going to be granting the media a ton of access, but I would just love to a TikTok of his two years because, I mean, I think, as you said, their margins are so, so small that if this was a 2015 vote margin, they'd just be like, all right, buddy, beat it. Time for you to resign, whatever. But they really can't. They can't screw around with it. And so someone like McCarthy has to say, yes, he's a weird little liar, man, but he's ours. All right. Well, who is our guest this week? All right, Kelly, this week we've got Claire Goforth. She's a staff writer at The Daily Dot and she covers covers a ton of topics we touch on here at Fever Dreams, including these mysterious electrical substation attacks. She covers libs of TikTok. She's been on this beat for a while, and I think she'll have a lot to discuss. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we've got Daily Dot staff writer Claire Goforth, who covers so many things that we talk about here on the podcast. Claire, how would you describe your beat? My beat really focuses on the far right and conspiracy theorist with a definite political bent. So you're always going to find me on Telegram and all the various other creepy crawly corners of the web where the far right congregates. Great. I'm sure we've seen each other like two ships that pass in the night on there. I'm a MAGA boat parade king on there. (laughs) Well, Claire, since you mentioned it, what's your favorite spot on Telegram? Where do you like to hang out? I am particularly fascinated by the QAnon type people. I do love to read what crazy things they're coming up with. When you're on this beat, as you guys are, and talking about it all the time, you have to have a certain level of humor about it. Because some of the things that they come up with are frankly quite amusing. I mean, it's really just wild the things that people will believe. Sometimes I think that they're, if I may curse, shitposting, but other times people genuinely believe this stuff, which I do find amusing and then at the same time a bit horrifying at times. Well, give me an example. What are you seeing out there these days? I mean, yesterday I had a really good laugh about everybody saying that Bolsonaro was sent to the hospital because he ate KFC. I mean, I've eaten Kentucky Fried Chicken plenty of times. I've never had an intestinal blockage as a result of that. (laughs) (laughs) 
it just seems as though whatever they can come up with that sort of fits their narrative or that makes whoever they like seem to be the innocent party or victim, that's what they're going to run with. And I do find that to be just an illustrative of human nature and also just this like capacity these people have to literally believe anything as long as it reinforces their worldview. I mean, in fairness, I do think there's a chance that the KFC caused the hospitalization. But Claire, so you're Florida based, right? That's correct. Yeah. We were talking earlier on this pod about Florida really kind of becoming a right wing hub. Bolsonaro is there right now, as is, I think, Madison Cawthorn. Can you spell out a little bit of how Florida is becoming this melting pot for the right? I wouldn't even say it's a melting pot. I would say it's like a magnet or just a giant suction that's pulling all these right-wing figures to Florida. And part of that is because we have really prominent Floridians, such as former President Donald Trump, who live here. And part of it is that our governor, Ron DeSantis, is he openly caters to the far right. He himself has some really extremist policies, as we saw with the Stop Woke Act and the Don't Say Gay Bill and those type of things. And those individuals, they make people who identify as far right or as hate groups or extremists kind of feel as though Florida is a welcoming place. And while this may feel like a recent development to us who are following it these past few years, Florida actually has a very long history of attracting extremist figures. While it has been a swing state for a while until recently, if you go back to the civil rights era of the mid 20th century, you're going to see some of the most shocking and horrifying things that happened in Florida. And even going back before that, during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, there was a lot of really terrible things that happened here that were being pushed and done by hate group. The KKK had a very powerful presence in Florida, particularly in Northeast Florida, where I reside. So Florida just, for whatever reason, it is very attractive to people who hate others based on what who they are, what they believe, the color of their skin. So in all seriousness, okay, maybe Bolsonaro didn't go to the hospital for KFC, but he is hanging out there. Have you seen the right maybe valorizing him as a new neighbor? Oh, absolutely. You see a lot of people online, these really prominent right-wingers heralding him as like a populist hero in their minds. I think they look at him very similar to former President Donald Trump. And one of the things I found really interesting that's been coming out more and more lately is how prominent people like Steve Bannon have been putting messages out to the Brazilian people, encouraging them to do basically a repeat performance of what we saw at the Capitol riot almost exactly two years ago. And what happened in Brazil over the weekend, as we've all seen, really very closely mirrored what happened in the Capitol riot, down to some of the costumes that people were wearing, some of the things that they were doing. I don't understand why these people are so enamored with dictators, with fascism. But the fact is that they are, and they're very actively trying to enact a worldwide revolution of fascism, not just here in the United States, but abroad in Europe and Australia and various other nations around the world. We see these groups that are getting a toehold who really want to push this type of extremism that is antithetical to democracy and Western values. So tell me about that. Give me some more examples of this kind of international right-wing coalition that you're seeing. Well, we see there is a neo-Nazi group who is active in my community. And what I see from them on Telegram is they are actively promoting content from neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups around the nation and around the world, encouraging one another to support each other financially and symbolically we're seeing more of a coalescence on the far right than we have seen for a couple of years. I mean, everything kind of came together at Unite the Right. But then it's fractured a bit. That was just such a negative, they got so much negative press over that. And there was a lot of infighting and some splinter groups formed and then people went to jail. And then again, we saw them coalesce a bit at the time of the Capitol riot when we saw the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the more fringy sort of three percenters who are of similar ilk kind of come together and work towards the same common purpose, which was overthrowing democracy. And then after the Capitol riot, yet again, we saw them kind of splinter off a little bit again. And people get charged, people go to jail, but they're gelling again. The losses in the midterms don't really seem to have 
put a hitch in their stride in their efforts to work together. I think that as we move forward, we're going to be seeing more and more of these people starting to work together. I'm sure that others of you on the podcast have some sources in law enforcement who do similar work to what we do in that space. And my sources at least tell me that they're very closely tracking these groups as they come together and they go to events together. They work together. One of the things that I reported on recently for the Daily Dot is how white nationalists are very happy about the recent like just rash of attacks on electrical infrastructure in the United States. We have it in five states over the past couple of months, the most serious being in North Carolina in December. And while each of these, like there have been clusters of incidents that law enforcement believe are related, it's clear that it's not the same group to many minds, that it wasn't exactly the same group that did the attacks in North Carolina and South Carolina as did the ones in the Pacific Northwest. But they're utilizing the same type of tactics and they are cheering this on in these far-right spaces that I am on online. And some of them have even gone so far as to say that they know who is responsible. And there is a thread of, this is a great thing. Let's keep doing this. They really believe in their minds that they can bring about the fall of the entire electrical grid in the United States. And they think this will cause mass chaos and revolution and do what the QAnon type people who are sort of overlap with these groups would redeem the great reset, right? When everything sort of goes back to square one. But in these extremist minds, if they affected this chaos and everything just goes back to square one, what will happen after that is that a white supremacist society will form. So while there's like all these different groups out there and they have sometimes they fight Sometimes they make fun of each other. We'll see them show up, three or four different groups represented at such as an event protesting a drag story hour in West Florida a couple of weeks ago. So we're seeing them work together more and they're pushing hate and they also are pushing acts of arguable terrorism. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned the role of conspiracy theories like QAnon in there because one thing we've talked a lot about on the show is how every time somebody suffers an injury, anytime someone dies, there's this immediate impulse now to blame it on the COVID vaccine. And you actually dug into a really cynical case recently regarding the Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin, who collapsed on the field. Can you tell us about someone who went viral claiming to be his doctor on Twitter? Yeah, there was this Twitter account who, in the immediate aftermath of Damar Hamlin collapsing on the field with cardiac arrest and being rushed to the hospital, that night they tweeted that they were his doctor and they had given him a booster shot just days earlier. That account, it went viral. It goes massively viral. I see it on multiple platforms being repeated by the same QAnon, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists who want to blame every type of medical emergency on the vaccine. And very few people were really taking a critical eye towards this. When I looked into it, I saw that account had only been formed a couple of weeks prior. They also had a substack that had been formed a few weeks prior. They had very few tweets. It wasn't a verified account. When you look up the doctor's name. There's only one doctor that I found whose name matched that, who was significantly older, practices a different type of medicine, doesn't practice, doesn't work for the Buffalo Bills. So there were just so many holes in this individual's claim that they had administered a booster shot to Damar Hamlin. And then more importantly, for a doctor to say that they had given someone medical care would very obviously violate HIPAA. I mean, you could lose your medical license, you could be sued. This is something that a physician, a serious actual physician would never do. But what the QAnon and anti-vaxxer community see is, again, bias confirmation. Look, this, the shot, the clot shot, as they like to call it, I'm sure you guys have heard that term. It made him have a heart attack, which actually, if you look into the research, it is in very, very rare cases. The second booster shot has been known to potentially cause myocarditis and pericarditis, which are potentially serious conditions, but most often heal on their own, cause death in such a rare number of cases that it's almost statistically insignificant. But to people in the anti-vaxxer crowd, Absolutely. There's just, they just really want to believe that the shot is deadly instead of, as we all know, it 
improves your outcome. It makes you less likely to get COVID, less likely to have serious COVID. But you get a football player, have cardiac arrest on the field. Well, that is just more fuel for them to say, well, that must have been the COVID vaccine, even though there's no credible evidence that DeMar Hamlin had received a booster shot recently. We previously saw the same thing happen with Grant Stahl, is that his last name? The World Cup reporter who tragically passed. Yeah, Grant Wall. Grant Wall, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, appreciate that. Who tragically passed while covering the World Cup. Same exact playbook every single time. They don't want to see people who died of COVID. There was an anti-vaxxer who I read about, and I don't recall their name, who passed away just today. Someone who had, I believe, done a podcast with Roseanne Barr, the actress, uh, not long ago, who was just very opposed to the vaccines, died of COVID. But you're never going to see that being spoken of in the QAnon world. And if you do see it spoken of in the QAnon world, they're going to claim something like the CIA took them out, right? They wanted to shut them up. It was always the them, never the us, the us who are opposing these vaccines, who are telling people that life-saving vaccine will actually kill them, who are in any way to blame. It's, It's bizarre and very frustrating. I don't know if there's anything that you can say to convince these people that the vaccine is safe and effective. We just have to try to find people in the middle and convince them that what is true is true. The facts in front of your face are the facts. It's kind of crazy. Claire, you were really early. You might have even been the first journalist to ID the Libs of TikTok account. And so I'm wondering how that account has expanded its influence after being named. Hugely, really. I mean, Chaya Rechik, I reported on her identity. We didn't name her specifically, but we provided enough information to identify her back in April. And since then, her account has grown enormously. She has unmasked herself and just become just enormously influential in the right-wing space. And this is somebody who is highly transphobic, homophobic, who looks at anything that acknowledges LGBTQ community, the LGBTQ community is a type of grooming and really has actively campaigned to suppress literature and instruction and acknowledgement of that community, particularly in schools. They have a real, really intense focus on children. One of the things that we reported on in the fall after making a substantial public records request of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' office, was Chaya Rachik was DMing with Christina Fashaw, who was then the governor's press secretary, all the way back in the fall of 2021, which was far before anyone realized that they were in communication. And sending each other tweets to amplify, Rachik was sending Pashaw information that later influenced the drafting and ultimate passage of the Don't Say Gay bill. And even beyond that, beyond the legislation, which is serious enough, we also saw how the governor's office used information that they received from her in their communications with the right-wing press, which they utilized very effectively to push their narrative that LGBTQ people are likely to be groomers and that we need to protect the children by suppressing this information and suppressing acknowledgement of these communities. It's wild to see how much the exposure has really helped Libs of TikTok. There are just some people who they love her. She's a hero in many people's minds. And that has not changed in the, what is it, eight months since I reported on her identity. And in fact, she's only becoming more. She was on Tucker Carlson in person revealing herself recently. I don't see that changing, but I do think that it's very important to keep shining a spotlight on her activities and show exactly like, I mean, legislation is one thing, but what we also see is where she's tweeted about an event that's going to happen in the future. And then the next thing you know, the Proud Boys are showing up and they're threatening violence. That's happened multiple times. She tweets about a hospital and gives misinformation about the type of care it provides transgender children. And the next thing you know, the hospital is receiving bomb threats, what they call I don't know if I get the pronunciation right because I've only read it, stochastic terrorism, where you essentially target people without saying, hey, go attack them. You just say, hey, look what's happening here. And then people read that as a cue. Well, oh, that's going on there. I should go and stop that from happening. And some of the people who follow that account who take cues from it are very dangerous people. 
And that's what we're seeing with those bomb threats on the children's hospitals and Proud Boys trying to assault somebody for reading to children. So, Claire, you've been covering the right for several years now. What would you say are the big takeaways that you've learned from covering the right for so long? And what has surprised you? What surprises me the most is how common the viewpoints that these people hold are and how much you can, when you think of a white supremacist, you think of someone who's in a hate group and it sort of conjures this image of someone in a hood burning crosses and doing these horrible things. And that is true to a point, but also what I see a lot of in speaking with some of these people, I've interviewed individuals who are in hate groups over the years. There's a real common thread among them of dreams unrealized, unfulfilled dreams, disappointments in life. Many of these individuals, they suffer from mental health issues, substance abuse issues. They aspired to something in their minds that was great and they didn't achieve that. They are lonely. They lack in community. Many of them have failed relationships. And this sort of hole in them, these unfulfilled desires, and this sort of sense of inadequacy and loneliness, it makes them susceptible to being indoctrinated into a hate group. I'm not saying that any of these qualities is an excuse for what they do the kind of hate that they spread. But I do think that by understanding the psychology that encourages people, that makes them susceptible to being indoctrinated to a hate group, perhaps we can better understand how to fight it at the root. Once somebody's already in there, it's very difficult to get them out particularly if they've been identified, particularly if they've done something criminal. I mean, it sort of cements them as a member of these groups. But if we can understand that this lack of opportunity and the deficiency in mental health care and the loneliness in our society are fueling the rise of hate, these are things that we can actually we can actually try to work on as a society. We have terrible mental health care in Florida, where I live, in many states, in the United States generally. We have a huge division in wealth. We have so much wealth concentrated at the top and so many people struggling to get by. We're lonely for a variety of reasons. That would be a more difficult one to address, but it's certainly not beyond our abilities. If we did a better job of providing opportunities, of protecting people as they try to achieve those benchmarks of adulthood, home ownership, having a family, finding a relationship, getting the type of care that we need. And I think that we could actually diminish the influence and reach and the growth of far right and hate groups because people aren't out there, generally speaking, saying to themselves, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to hate people because they're different than me. And I want that to be my identity. We're all sort of driven by similar things. Claire, you've been covering the right for a while. Hit us with a prediction for 2023. In 2023, we are going to see these groups grow and attempt to get a lot more attention. And they are going to be effective at that. We're going to see more violence and we're going to see more acts of terrorism. They have found that as an effective way to get their message out and they are going to continue to do it. All right. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. We've been joined here by Claire Goforth. She's a reporter at The Daily Dot. Claire, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Claire underscore Goforth, or on The Daily Dot, dailydot.com slash author slash Claire Goforth. All right, folks, it's time for another slice of fresh hell. Kelly, what do we have today? Well, let me pitch an idea to you. Your adult children won't talk to you. You're cut out of Thanksgiving. You don't need to search your soul. You need to hire a deprogrammer. <laughs> the New York Post is out with this absolute banger of a story featuring parents who aren't on good terms with their grown-up kids. So instead of making amends, maybe discussing the political issues dividing them, they've decided that their kids are in cults and they're going to hire people who call themselves deprogrammers to forcibly remove them from the beliefs that they've acquired. This is sort of a big issue for the New York Post. I mean, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but this whole thing started about a month ago with this idea of this heiress who was deprogrammed. Yeah, absolutely. So the New York Post back in November, they ran this story about an heiress who went to Mount Holyoke. It's a women's college. She fell under the thrall of liberal culture there and her parents had to pay for a deprogrammer to 
teach her the error of her ways and to bring her back into the conservative fold. Now this follow-up story says that other moms have been reading this account and they said, by God, that's exactly what happened to me and my children. I need a deprogrammer. And I want to read some quotes to you from this because it's just every line. Fantastic. Beth Penske, a 54-year-old single mother from New Jersey who now lives in Florida, never tells anyone that she's estranged from her only son and daughter. Quote, I lie all the time, said Penske, who told the Post her kids have rejected her because they're, quote, woke and she is not. Quote, I can't tell anyone I don't have a relationship with them. I had so much shame about it. It looks awful for me. It makes me feel so terrible. I lie. But then she saw the story about the Mount Holyoke deprogramming and said, that is exactly what I need. Right. So this is really crazy that this sort of in industry. And I will say, judging from this article, I would describe it as a very nascent industry. But this idea of these parents who are kind of like, you know, they're estranged from their kids for whatever reason. I think in this story, we're only getting the parents side of it. And I should also say, like all of these kids, it's not like they're in the weather underground. I mean, it's like they go to like sort of like lefty schools. And then it's just like, and then my kid came back. And they really bury in the post, by the way, that several of the estranged daughters came out in college. And then one wonders what the aspect is there that how much that is playing in. And is it truly a oh, my kid got so into CRT, and that's why we're fighting now. Also, I have to keep pounding it. Like, the kids in this are 25 to 30 years old. They're, they're not children. I think what's interesting about the post sort of hobby horse here with deprogramming and this idea that the kids are, yes, you're exactly right. Kids, I mean, these are, in some cases, people in their 30s, that they're being brainwashed by the left. I mean, this really gets into a lot of critical race theory stuff as well, this idea, or the groomer panic. And I think fundamentally, a lot of that stuff just comes down to people, this fear that the schools will turn your children against you, which is, I think, in more normal terms, the idea that your children will be exposed to other ideas um, and decide that yours are awful. And maybe they are. And so on the right, you have other things like, well, send your kid to Hillsdale College, the college that doesn't take any federal money and is very conservative, or you send them to Liberty University. Or you can have this deprogrammer thing. Now, Kelly, tell me about one of these deprogrammers, Kay Yang. All right. So Kay Yang is, a, she said she was a former trans and LGBT activist. She previously used they, them pronouns and then saw the light. She realized that the trans agenda was really all about the new world order or destabilizing the family, et cetera, et cetera, and now sells deprogramming packages. Now, listen, I'm not here to police anyone's gender identity. She is what she says she is. But I do think there is a very emerging market of ex-trans people who Many of them do start to market their narratives and their classes online saying that I was under the thrall of the left and now I'm not and I will teach your wayward children to be like me. So this is one of the people that the Post is reaching out to and who's offering services to parents who are trying to reconnect with their children. What I would just say here, though, is that if you are really estranged from your kids, you haven't talked to them in ages like the lead character in the story, maybe the best way to reconnect is not to reach out after a couple of years and say, hey, I got a deprogrammer for you. You want to hang out? I will say, so when you get into the guts of this story, it becomes clear that a lot, a lot of this is gender because my sense is these deprogrammers are not like, stop reading Howard Zinn and like locking you in a hotel room until you stop. But the Kay Yang story is very about the supposed like gender ideology. And so this is like, oh yeah, this is like reparative therapy or what have you. That's sort of being dressed up as this new deprogramming. Now that kind of does harken back to the high times of cult deprogramming when you would hire someone to kidnap your kid from like the wild, wild country cult and not let him out of a motel room until they agreed to be normal again. So they quote like a, an old timey deprogram in here. Kelly, tell me about this guy who's sort of being propped up here as the guy who says deprogramming is legit. Oh, yeah. So they're quoting Ted Patrick. He's a 92-year-old deprogrammer. Yeah, from the kind of heyday of rescuing people from cults. And he's saying, of course, that now it's more important than ever that people hire deprogrammers. But Mr. Patrick has maybe a dubious resume, and he's got a Wikipedia page to check out, let's just say. In 1980, he was paid $27,000 to deprogram a 35-year-old teacher who her parents subjected to her involvement in, quote, leftist political activities. He's accused of handcuffing her to a bed for two weeks and not giving her food. And he wasn't even charged in that because she didn't press charges. He was repeatedly convicted for things that were, yeah, outright kidnapping. In 1974, he was convicted of holding two women against
against their wills because you believe they were controlled by a, quote, satanic group. I shouldn't laugh. That's kind of the narrative that we're seeing right now with a lot of satanic panic. He was convicted of conspiracy, kidnapping and false imprisonment again in 1980. Again, this was a 26-year-old. This guy has an insane rap sheet. Insane. I'm pulling up this guy's Wikipedia now. People love saying, you look at the contents. Okay, career as a deprogrammer, civil and criminal proceedings involving Patrick. Now, this guy, I had never heard of this guy. This guy has a 1,200-word section on his Wikipedia just about civil and criminal proceedings against him. So it is crazy. This guy's like a villain. And it is crazy for the Post to be like, the guy who loves kidnapping people, you think this is a great idea? Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it does come at a moment when the right is very concerned about people kidnapping children. Well, this is, it's okay if it's your adult children. Kind of harkening back to this idea about how this relates to panic about what's being taught at schools. There is this idea that I think is growing on the right that even when your children become adults, that they're kind of like still your property or like you should be able to direct their lives. You think about this whole thing where it's like, what do you mean parents shouldn't be able to decide what's taught in public schools or that they shouldn't have a veto over everything their child encounters in the world? I think we're seeing this play out in sort of an extreme way in this deprogramming thing where it's like, if only I had hired a deprogrammer to prevent my now 30-year-old child from becoming estranged from me. Yeah, absolutely. And this in some ways is sort of the customer service complaint aspect of education where people think that they can call up the principal and complain that their children's teacher taught them about Martin Luther King Jr. or something like that. It really does strike me as fairly privileged and wealthy attitude. And what showed up again and again in this Post article was the financial background of the parents who are hiring deprogrammers. The story that kicked this off with the woman who went to Mount Holyoke and had a deprogrammer used on hers, that was a literal heiress. Like, <laughs> it was the heir to a very wealthy family. And another family quoted in this story, there's the mother of five daughters. All the daughters went to prestigious New York City private high schools. Many of them went to Ivy League colleges. And that's where the parents say that they started straying. And to me, I wouldn't be surprised if these children were actually just experiencing something slightly outside of their extremely moneyed milieu and were being pulled back by their parents after experiencing some of the real world for the first time. I think that's right. I mean, this idea that it doesn't seem that your children necessarily have to join the left-wing Maoist cult in order for your views to change when you move away from your family. This reminds me, though, of how hard it is, how kind of fraught the world of, like, cult experts is. The fact that the Post had to talk to this kidnapper guy and this sort of K. Yang figure. In my book, I had to, and I'm sure you've run into this in reporting, Kelly, people say, is QAnon a cult, for example? And so then you have to go find the cult experts. And often these people are deprogrammers who have kind of this kind of shady past, or they're people who were involved in cults and had their own kind of bizarre backgrounds. So really, it's the world's deprogramming is very fraught. And this whole, uh, the introduction of the anti-woke deprogrammers is not convincing me otherwise. The other thing is, if you do talk to a psychologist who's legitimately credentialed and helping people leave exploitative groups, they will tell you that it's not something you can force. You can't kidnap someone and hold them in a hotel room until they sign an affidavit that says, I'm going to leave the weather underground. It's a mutual process. It's a process of changing minds and giving people stable and supportive backups for those beliefs. And I don't see that happening anywhere in here. It's a very combative, very aggressive means of stealing your children back. But I mean, this is just fascinating. Can you imagine, I mean, just to close up here, like you've been listening to some lefty bond podcasts or what have you. You get a knock on your door and it's your mom. She's like, yo, this is Kay Yang. We've been looking at your Twitter likes. <laughs> we found your Reddit account. You're going to have to sit down with Kay Yang and you're not leaving until she feels that you are sufficiently conservative. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 